welcome to HemeCast. I'm Kate Kerr, Director of Research at HemeNet. HemeCast is a regular podcast that will tackle topical issues relevant to haemophilia practice. This is the first of a two-part episode, We Don't Ask and They Don't Tell, and tackles the thorny topic of pain in people with haemophilia. I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests, each of whom will share their perspectives on a topic that has suddenly become very current. So I'm Paul McLaughlin, I am the Specialist Physio at the Royal Free Haemophilia Centre and I'm also an NIHR Clinical Doctoral Fellow um, uh, with my research looking at um, pain management in haemophilia. Natalie? Yeah, hello, my name is Natalie Roussel. I'm a physiotherapist and I'm working at the University of Antwerp and I'm uh, very interested into pain and more specifically into pain mechanisms in patients with haemophilia and other chronic joint diseases. Thank you both. So with our HemeCast, we're going to be looking at hot topics in haemophilia and uh, related bleeding disorders. And I think one of the things that we all three all recognise at the moment is that as healthcare providers, we're probably rubbish at pain management. Um, And I think pain management in haemophilia is a real hot topic, partly because it's a hot topic, but also because for people with haemophilia, it's obviously something they're living with and it's not very pleasant. Um, So why do we think pain is this important issue suddenly? What is it now rather than 10 years ago that makes it an important issue? Apart Um, from Paul's PhD. (laughs) apart from my PhD. Um, I think it has always been important to people with haemophilia living with it, but um, I suspect that the shift in uh, care provision um, and the way care has sort of been delivered may well have brought it to the fore a little bit more. Um, I think there is a strong historical narrative to pain in haemophilia in the sense that traditionally it's always been blamed on bleeding. And certainly in the last 10, 15 years, the huge amount of better treatments coming on um, and being available to people with haemophilia has suddenly left <clears throat> uh, bleed as the the culprit slightly out on a limb because if treatment is better and bleeding is very little, actually, if it's not bleeding, then what is it? And suddenly people with haemophilia haven't got a management strategy because you can't just take factor if it's check factor and the bleed doesn't go away. But also um, I think clinicians have um, started to realize and are getting better. I wouldn't say they're there yet, but at sort of asking the questions that matter in regards to, to pain and, and actually starting to look at it from a less uh, biomedical view, I suspect. Um, Natalie, what do you think? as the pain scientist? Um, I think indeed that the last year's treatment was um, much better and comorbidities have been managed. And now it's time to, to have a, a new challenge uh, that is tackling pain. And um, pain management is now recognized as a universal right, uh, meaning that patients associations also talk to each other and there are options to manage pain. So it's also now a priority in patients with hemophilia, seeing that uh, I would say most of the hematological uh, disorders or uh, stuff have been treated. So now it's time to discuss quality of life and pain, maybe much more than the the past done in the past. Um, And all three of us have just talked about hemophilia and the hemophilia community. Do you think we should be looking at pain beyond those with haemophilia or do they not have 
pain or have we just never asked them? So those with full Villebrand's disease or platelet disorders. Or... Is it the joint bleeding that is the cause of issues? Or... I agree. Um, I think that's a Pandora's box and I don't mean it shouldn't be open, but I mean that certainly from my own clinical experience, we have our physio components and our delivery of care within that musculoskeletal framework is stretched with what we've got. And that's just dealing with people with mostly severe hemophilia, some moderates and very few males. And then we deal acutely with the bleeds from some from the other inherited bleeding disorders. I think we need a wholesale uh, look at how care is delivered and who's delivering it. Um, and ideally, you would want to have all-round uh, person-centred care that incorporates all of the above. Um, but certainly, I'm my own research has sort of uh, highlighted that although clinicians acknowledge pain is there and they want to help, they feel very out of their depth in talking about and sort of providing pain management within a framework of hematology, hemostasis. Then you talk to patients and they're very anxious about being sent to somebody else about their pain who doesn't actually understand their haemophilia. So they have to talk about their story over and over again and actually the lived history of their haemophilia or their bleeding disorder gets lost in being sent for management of a symptom, which is pain, but actually pain exists within their identity with haemophilia and their bleeding disorder. So I think we're not even very good at it with the people who we see with the most joint damage and the most pain. So I think to spread it even thinner at this point to try and incorporate other patient groups would, would risk nobody getting very good management at all. Um, but that's not to say it is a huge problem. Um, I think we we definitely don't know the extent of it. Um, and I think that's the next five, ten years of work of, of trying to, to, to figure out what kind of problem we're dealing with. So then do we know how pain does impact the haemophilia community at the moment? Maybe I can answer yep. that. We had in Belgium a, a national survey and uh, we asked that question using the existing validated questionnaires to have just a broad view. Of course, with a questionnaire, you cannot have a deep insight, but at least you have some, some picture. And we see that pain impacts indeed, not only the severe and may, um, moderate hemophilia patients, but also the mild hemophilia patients, especially the older ones. Um, and also discussions with carers um, uh, highlight the importance of pain in their daily life, not only during menstruation, but also during other moments. So I really think that we should have this discussion and we should continue with the surveys to see how large this impact is, not only in, in the patient, as Paul said, which we see in, in the uh, hemophilia treatment centers, such as uh, severe and moderate, but also in the carriers and the mild patients and maybe in the vulnerable so I really think we have a job to do there, yeah. I think as well that it's identifying, I think haemophilia care still exists within a very medical model of care. Um, and that's not a bad thing in the sense that treatment for haemophilia and bleeding disorders is hemostatic treatment. It is it is delivery of, of medicine of whatever description to make bleeding better or less significant. However, once you get into the comorbid aspects of living with those kind of disorders, a biomedical or a strictly medical model isn't very good and doesn't actually 
begin to, to, to formulate a, a package of care that can actually benefit the person in front of you. And I think the, the pressing problems are what a comprehensive care center looks like, should look like, but actually rethinking what comprehensive care should be providing now moving forward if we're thinking about not just people with haemophilia but actually carriers, the other rare bleeding disorders, if we're beginning to to look forward at, at what our care provision should be, either the people working in the centres have to do more to improve their knowledge or they have to absorb other specialties within their comprehensive care team to provide the knowledge and the support from bleeding disorders to somebody in geriatric medicine or uh, long-term cancer care or you know all these other things that are beginning to 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 sort of be problematic for people living with inherited bleeding disorders and do you think the haemophilia team should be all things to all men or should we say actually this is outside of my experience my skill set and i will then send you off to the pain management person or team or whoever I personally think it should be within comprehensive care. I think the haemophilia team have a responsibility um, ethically and morally that actually we are celebrating the fact that we are having people with haemophilia living longer with less bleeding, yet we're not prepared to, to ma help manage the, the effects, the comorbid effects of, of having lived longer with, with bleeding and joint disease. Um, I know pain teams are amazing at what they do, but actually they come along with their own... <clears throat> physios their own psychology teams it actually it's a it's a mirror image of what we would provide in a comprehensive care team so actually why why wouldn't it be within a comprehensive care team if comprehensive care teams are adequately staffed with psychology physio specialist nurses um and you know do people with hemophilia want to be sent off to a pain clinic um where perhaps you know it, they're giving different pain medications, which may or may not work, and they may or not may want to take them. We don't actually know what, really understand what people with haemophilia, how they want their pain managed going forward. No, I think it's even worse than that. I don't think we even know how much pain people with haemophilia have. Yeah, absolutely. And this is it's a very low bar for what we know. Um, and I think Natalie could attest this. I think haemophilia we are years behind where some of the other arthritis are with pain, where pain medicine is. We are, we've, we're, I think that's historically because of how haemophilia was managed and all the issues that have happened over the years with um, co-infection and, and how you, certainly things were getting better treatment-wise and then these issues happened where perhaps the focus of treatment became keeping people alive and trying to manage things like that and developing treatments that we're only now able to turn eyes towards some of the other things um, but we are we are definitely behind the curve when it comes to other other specialties in medicine when it comes to pain management absolutely can i ask both of you why you think that is so as the child pediatric person here i don't think we think about pain enough but we think about pain only when the children come in with an acute bleed and then we give them a bit of paracetamol and that's it and then we never really reassess whether that pain went away now the physios might a bit when they're doing some kind of rehab but if we're not addressing that long-term pain from early in childhood and they're growing up with it how difficult is it then to measure in adolescents and adults and what can we do about it 
I think it's a good question. Um, I think that um, the evaluation of pain is still an issue. It's still a challenge because you have the traditional pain intensity, which everyone measures, but pain, pain intensity, it's just a picture of the moment. It doesn't say anything about the impact on quality of life. It doesn't say anything about the emotional and cognitive reactions of the person itself or the environment, because in children, you might expect that how the parents react to pain may have an impact on how the child reacts on pain. So the evaluation of pain should be much more and much larger than only the pain intensity. And yes, I think that you can integrate pain specialists in the, uh, in the comprehensive team because it's a multidisciplinary team. So I do not think that it's good to, to split the team and work with two teams. But I think um, in the hemophilia care, a lot can be done to improve the knowledge of pain and, and train uh, nurses and physicians and physiotherapists to assess pain, um, not in a, in a fundamental scientific way, but at least in a clinical way to have a better view. Um, so I think we can do better than now, yes. So what should we do? So I think that the, as a you know as a nurse, the concern is you do much more than paracetamol. You're condemning the patients to becoming sort of drug addicts and and having them on very strong analgesia. And my you know as a clinician's concern then is that we're making them addicts. So we try not to give them too much, and that's a terrible admission to make. What should we be doing? I I think the the going back you know the so the, the the nurse perspective as you say is the fe the the feeling that you need to treat the pain with painkillers which in itself for acute pain scenarios is by far the most effective um uh, modality treatment choice however we i think there's a huge amount of trust has been placed in treatment that you've had prophylaxis you can't be bleeding therefore a slight disbelieving sort of quality to you, but how can you have pain there if you're not bleeding? So you begin to question the person in pain or the child in pain or the parent talking about their kid, um, which actually makes them question then themselves going, oh, are you saying the pain is not real or it's not as terrible? You know, should it need a massively swollen joint to, 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 to give countenance to the fact that they say it's bleeding? But we, it goes right back to my original statement, we actually don't know the effect of uh, not having a normal factor level within a joint all of the time on pain, on, on acute, on nociception, on, on sort of how a joint or a tissue may feel at a certain point. We don't know if microbleeding happens really and at what level and across how many structures and tissues. We don't know if somebody is microbleeding, does that uh, allow a continuing inflammatory process at a very low grade to, to happen. We assume normality in children in primary prophylaxis that they've had no joint bleeds, therefore they must be normal, therefore how can they have pain? So we're <clears throat> again dismissing that lived experience. There's this whole black hole of nothingness. We don't actually understand any of that physiological process in people with hemophilia until we get right to sort of hemophilic arthropathy where we can borrow from osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis where we sort of know what joint capsules are doing and what cartilage and subchondral bone and how they may be part of the pain story. But I think we have a whole gap 
within bleeding and within bleeding disorders that we don't really understand. And of course, then, if you then go and have hammer or will find not, you sort of you treat pain with just pain medication. It may be missing the the parental anxiety, which is driving some of the pain in a child, or the worry about work um, and functional impairment that is driving some pain uh, behaviors in, in adults. There's a whole lot of stuff I don't think we understand, which puts clinicians in a difficult position, because if you only have pain medication or referral to pain clinic, it's quite a binary outcome for a, for a patient. So either you take the pain medications or we send you to somebody else because we don't know what's going on, but they don't know anything about hemophilia. So you can kind of see how perhaps people are forced into a self-management cycle that doesn't involve hemophilia clinicians. So I know somebody who does know quite a lot about this, and that's you, Natalie. So <laughs> I uh, remember hearing you speak at EHAD, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago now, and talking about all of that pain feedback mechanisms, and suddenly you made me sit up and think about how rubbish we are at pain. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is that you think we should be doing around mm-hmm. pain assessment and pain management for people with haemophilia? Okay, yes. Um as, as Paul said, we have a lot of um, knowledge based on other chronic joint pathologies. So I'm not speaking about uh, the child with hemophilia with maybe a normal joint or with microbleeds Paul was talking about, but maybe with a, a more older patients uh, suffering from joint arthropathies. And in the pain community or in the hemophilia community, pain is always linked to bleeding. Acu- uh, an acute pain, meaning that the pain intensity is, is, uh, is going up is associated with bleeding, while we know that in, in patients with uh, joint uh, arthropathies, they can also have a um, pain intensity that is much higher on day one compared to day two, and that is not associated with the bleed. So these fluctuations in pain intensity is perfectly normal in chronic joint diseases. And we can do a lot of it, but we have to assess it properly. And um, we, thanks to the EHAD funding, we performed a study in which we assessed that in patients with hemophilia, and we saw that one third of the patients um, had signs of neuropathic pain, meaning that it's not probably the joint that is uh, dysfunctional, but that in a central nervous system, you have a dysfunction. And you need to, to, to manage these patients with other medication, with other treatment plan. And uh, to come back to our study, what we saw that those patients with these signs of neuropathic pain had the same joint structure and the same joint function, but they had worse quality of life. So we have MRI of these uh, joints and they do worse because the pain is not tackled uh, properly. And to come back on what can you do except medication, you can do a lot. And we also know from from hemophilia patients that those who were doing um, physical activity, but of course in a progressive way, they are uh, having less pain. Of course, they are now I would say an anecdotal evidence, but we need to, 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 to do more research to see how physical activity can be used to decrease the pain. And of course, it will be the, the pain in daily life related to the joint uh, dysfunction or dysfunction of the central nervous system and not linked to the bleeding. If an acute bleeding occurs or other types of bleeding, then you, you still can have a, a increase in pain intensity, but you can do a lot to, 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 to manage or to keep pain under control. And how should we um, even identify that people have pain? I mean, 
Is it doing something like the EQ5D and looking at the pain score in that, or is it a smiley faces, or a, my pain is an eight out of ten today? What's what is the best way to find out how much pain people have? Ask them, and that sounds quite an obvious answer, but I think the obsession with attempting to 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 get a questionnaire of some description or just sort of um, quantitatively gather information on somebody's qualitative lived experience of pain misses a whole lot of, of you know, we can ask you're in the acute joint bleeding episode, what happened, what were you doing? We, we sort of look for injury, but actually if somebody has lived with pain or painful episodes for 50 or 60 years, a VAS, for example, a zero to 10 scale will not be able to <clears throat> get a belief of why they think is happening, their fears around why it's happening. And actually, you know, certainly one of the things I think is most useful for me as a physio is when somebody comes to see me, I let them talk to me at me for 10 or 15 minutes and actually just say, why are you here today? What's brought you along? What's troubling you? Very open question. And I don't interrupt. I let them talk. And actually, within those 10 or 15 minutes, you get a sense of the person, you get a sense of what's troubling them, um, why they're there, why why the pain that has been a trouble there been on and off for 40 years is now suddenly bothering you. Why is it so distressing now when last month, six months ago, it wasn't? Um, the joint structure hasn't changed. It was always an arthritic joint. You know, it doesn't appear to be bleeding. But actually, it may be that there's problems at work. There's somebody's asking questions about why they're having so many days off or why they're always late. Or, you know, there may be some other little things in there. But I think we sometimes lose the value of just asking a very open question. Tell me about your pain. And that is that is the assessment. And actually, you know, I think that takes you down a different route and say, here is this questionnaire. Please fill it in. Oh, you've got terrible quality of life. I'm very sorry for that. So take some more factor or here's some pain medications and you haven't addressed any of the, well, they call them the softer aspects, but I would say the more important aspects of a person. I would add on that. And I think that start with open question is really important. And uh, based on the story the patient is telling you, you can ask much more uh, or go into to also close questions because uh, to come back on the neuropathic pain components, these patients will describe their pain as more burning or it will be uh, coupled with maybe numbness or something like that. Um, you can also ask how patients cope with their pain. What are they doing? But also what are they thinking? Because as Paul said, it can interfere with work and be, people can really ruminate and, and, and think a uh, whole time about their pain. Um, and that will also influence the pain intensity they, they feel. And, and finally, just ask them uh, where they have pain. And it might seem a very stupid question, but if you have a patient with pain location at six, seven places, um, maybe also unrelated to, to joints that are often um, a problem in, in hemophilia, you, you can see that this pain is not a local sensation anymore and that it becomes towards more widespread pain. But indeed, uh, uh, subjective evaluation, just a discussion with the patient offers much more information compared to sometimes validated questionnaires or short questionnaires. Um. 
And so then what are you two able to do? So clearly as physiotherapists, you can do lots of hands-on physio rehabby manipulation type things. But is there more than that that you think you offer as the pain experts in the hemophilia physio world? I don't know if we're experts in in that sense. I think we we find ourselves in a in a very as researchers in an area that interests us. But I think um, over the past few years, I've certainly been reflecting on my own practice, but also the practice of the hemophilia physios that I see and I know and I meet. Um, I think certainly for physios, we are in hemophilia. We are a group of expert communicators, and by that I mean it's a as you say, there's the uh, the, the vision of what physio is, which is a person doing something to a patient, so exercising or moving the joint or prescribing exercises or activities. But I would say that a lot of what we do is listening and helping somebody in pain make sense of what is happening with them, um, providing hope, perhaps, that it won't always be that way. There may be something we can do and finding that that thing that you can do together that is maybe beneficial, but because we still have the element of doubt, we don't know all the time <clears throat> if things we do may or may not be helpful. Um, so I'd say to focus on the things a physio does to a person misses all the other stuff that happens, the therapeutic relationship, as it's called, and that the the trust that you, you know somebody with hemophilia trusts in me to to work. To push their joint further than they have ever really felt they wanted to do is actually quite a, a big part of somebody to give over um, and they are experts in their condition they've managed this for years and years and years and then somebody comes in and says actually I've got a better idea you should try this if it doesn't fit with their life their 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 contextual belief system they'll politely go okay uh, take your exercise sheet and then go home and never do anything because it doesn't make any sense um, so I, th I think we're good listeners. I think we're good at sort of poking around the, the darker recesses of somebody's belief system, certainly around pain anyway, I would hope. Yeah, the, the starting point is maybe that uh, the brain and the central nervous system are plastic systems. And in the same way you can learn a new language at an adult's age, you can learn your system to react differently on a, a stimulus, which is eliciting pain in a, a certain moment of your life, you can kind of detrain the system uh, to give that reaction to that stimulus. And, um, but it, it needs a lot of training. And so as Paul said, you need to have the trust of your patients that he, he, he really thinks that he can change something. And then you, of course, have a, a role as a coach because you can do hands-on mobilization. But if you really want to train the pain system, the patient has to do it himself or herself and and their physical activity is really really necessary again and again and again and you have this frustration because it's not fast enough and the pain is still there or you have the anxiety that you will overload the joint and increase the pain sensation or even create damage so you have a lot of discussion with your patients during the treatments but yes there is some hope and research will show us that 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 even in patients with hemophilia with real damaged joints, you can decrease the pain in the end if you have a, a proper um, exercise and, and physical activity program together with medication and, and counseling and stuff like that. It's not on, on our own, of course. And so Natalie, what made you suddenly be interested in pain? <laughs> um, but pain was, was uh, um, 
the 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 topic uh, beginning in the, the years 2000s we had so many people with low back pain um, and at that moment uh, quality of movement seemed to be very very important and uh, what what struck me was that in research you had one treatment plan for every patient which was the opposition of what you're doing in clinics you are taking into account all these I would say individual uh, aspects of your patients. So I, I was thinking at that moment, so more than 20 years ago, that this was not a good approach. And uh, so we had a, a big evolution in the pain science going from uh, this kind of manual approach. You have to fix it because something is not moving enough. Then we had the motor control approach and we had to, to have a better control of the quality of the movements. And then we had the, the more psychosocial approach in which we think that you have a lot of barriers, um, but people in pain have um, always had a special attention for me. So. Um, cannot answer that question but it's a good one <laughs> so i'm going to ask paul now so i know you're doing pain as in hemophilia as your phd why that and why not something about rehabilitation post knee surgery or something um i find post-surgical rehabilitation not particularly enthralling <laughs> as a topic area um that's not to say for orthopedic physios um i have always had an interest in pain. Um, I think I sit quite a lot in a social psychological side of physio always when I have. I was always the uh, student physio who was getting told off for talking too much to the patients. I was always the junior physio who whose notes never included all the standard things you had to do with two patients. Um, I just like knowing why people do what they do. Um, and so my career has been very varied. Obviously, I've been in hemophilia a long time, but um, I've worked in elderly mental health. I've worked in acute uh, inpatient mental health. I've worked in all the standard procedure things for physios and orthopedics and respiratory medicine and outpatients, musculoskeletal. Um, but it was my couple of years in mental health, uh, working with people with acute psychiatry and those with elderly psychiatry um, that actually sort of helped formulate what I wanted to do going forward as a physio. Um, and it wasn't always juggling people's knees around or sort of providing lists of exercises. Um, so, and that's, and then obviously finding haemophilia, which is a great job for a physio, I think, because it's constantly stimulating. But then <clears throat> it's the realization that, as I said before, there's this gap. We we're sort of borrowing from sports medicine and acute muscle hematomas. We're borrowing from OA when we talk about hemophilia arthropathy. We're borrowing from rheumatoid arthritis when we're wondering about inflamed joints without bleeding. And actually, it'd be quite nice if we had our own, you know, data and our own good quality information that could help uh, people with hemophilia and not just keep borrowing from everybody else's because they're not the same. Although they appear, the x-ray might look similar to no way, it's not the same. It's, you know, um, people with OA or RA or stroke or Parkinson's or any, they are long-term conditions, but they are acquired. So they've had a normal life, inverted commas, before that. They know what they've lost in the sense that they were able to play golf and now they've had a stroke and they are unable to play golf. Um, I think people with haemophilia have only known haemophilia. That is normal to them. 
um, and certainly for men of a certain age, joint disease and bleeding and pain is also normal. Um, so when you then, certainly with somebody with a lot of joint damage or a lot of pain, you then say, can you imagine your knee not being painful or imagine what it would feel like after surgery? And they're a bit like, not really, because I, I don't know what that would feel like because I've never known that. And it's sort of, that's why they're different. There's, there's this other stuff, um, this life experience of all that, all the things they've done to help themselves that have worked or not worked or aren't particularly, a lot of the stuff that works is not medically prescribed. It is not something we as healthcare professionals have advised or told them to do. I think that's really interesting, that whole bit that, and who is it for me to come along and say, well, actually don't do that. That's not in any textbook, try this, it, you know, when you take it. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, a turnaround, actually allowing somebody with that level of knowledge of their own condition to help me help them. It, it's perhaps changing the power dynamic in, a, in that therapeutic relationship. We'll draw this hemcast to an end for now, but join us in part two when Paul and Natalie will explore some of the practical things that people with haemophilia actually do to manage their pain and how we as haemophilia clinicians can help. Thank you also to the pharmaceutical companies that sponsor the HemeNet educational programme and thank you to you for listening. See you again soon.